0: You this morning. I'm glad all of you didn't go off for the holiday weekend. About a third of them did. They'll be back next Sunday. Hallelujah. Good to see you. Turn around and smile at somebody. Tell them they're looking good this morning. Welcome to Grace Point. Amen. Seems like every Sunday for the last three, haven't we? We've been baptizing people. That's wonderful. That means people are getting saved, born again, and uh, that's what it's about. Can you say amen? Today I want to uh, entitle this The Power of Awareness. And uh, you say, aware of what? I guess we would say the awareness of what Jesus accomplished in his finished work on the cross. You could actually uh, describe awareness in the state of what the Bible calls consciousness in Hebrews, and we're going to read it in just a minute. But uh, when you see that word in Scripture, it's the state, it says, of being aware of something within yourself. When you have a consciousness of something, and what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter ten, and we're going to uh, read the, maybe just the first couple, and then I'll go through them as we as we begin today. This is an area that I talk about fairly often. I love talking about uh, this, and it's also the area that I get the most questions when we put out uh, blogs and and articles and messages. The biggest response I get back is questions, and and a lot of those from people that's never even been here to to, to our church, is about forgiveness. And it's so hard for some people to believe uh, that they are forgiven. Now, if they've not accepted Christ, they're not enjoying the benefit of that forgiveness. But as far as Jesus paying the price for that forgiveness and for sin, he did that 2,000 years ago on the cross. Can somebody say amen to that? And so so Hebrews is one of my most favorite books of the Bible. Uh, I would tell you when I first got born again, it was one of the most confusing books of the Bible to me. Uh, But that's because I didn't have a grasping of grace, and not that I'm an expert, but I'm I'm not where I'm going to be, but I sure have left the station where I was. I'll tell you that. Can somebody say amen? amen? Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says, For the law, having a shadow of The good things to come and not the very image of the things can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So right there you see that God's standard is perfection. Now how many, you know, says nobody's perfect? And that's true. In the natural, in what we do, none of us are. But as far as what God does for us when we're born again, that spirit man, he makes that spirit man perfect. I remember one of the most, uh, res, you know, massive responses I got is when I did an article that we put out on Facebook and on our website that said, uh, uh, "Good people don't go to heaven; only perfect people." Man, that that ruffled some feathers. Because uh, a lot of people think God grades on a curve. Just do your best. Can I tell you that God don't want your best? Thank you for them couple of. Holy Ghost grunts. So that means you say it again when they they do that to you. You say it again. God don't want your best. He he wants your death. Die to self. Dead is how we were. Dead in what? Trespasses and sin, Paul said. And when you got born again, you became alive to God. And it's so absolutely important that that you get that. And so... You say, well, I'm not perfect. Well, in your spirit, if you're born again, you're perfect. You're molecule for molecule in your spirit, just like Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. Hebrews 12 and 23 says that part of being a child of God is he, he's the one who makes the spirits of just men made perfect. You understand that? And so that's, that's, that's God's requirement. That's God's level. And then he provides it through his son. So, Father, we thank you for the word of God that illumines our heart, transform our minds, Lord, that will bring true transformation in our lives. Let us be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Let us see, Lord God, what you did, what you accomplished, what you finished on the cross. We declare that in Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. I guess you could say as Paul begins here, and I want you to keep your Bible open and we'll put up these verses for you. But when you see this in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, what you see is he is comparing the new covenant with the old covenant. He's comparing grace against what uh, Jesus came to do was fulfill the law. So uh, I guess the relationship of the old covenant to the new covenant probably could be best illustrated by what most of us are real familiar with, and that's the use of a credit card. So in other words, a credit card in itself has no real intrinsic value, right? It's just a piece of plastic. And so, but when you go to do business today, so maybe after church, you'll have a meal and you'll hand them a credit card. You won't hand them any cash and they will accept that credit card in lieu of cash because it is a forerunner or a shadow of the true payment that will be made in the future, right? The the true payment though is not made until you pay your credit card bill. Right? And until that time, all that credit card does is it covers, we could use a Bible word, atones for the purchase that you made. That's kind of what the old covenant sacrifices did. And so you hear sometimes people say, you know, the atonement, there is no New Testament atonement. The word atonement means to cover. And so what they would do is their sins were not dealt with, but their sins were merely covered. Until the true payment, which was Jesus' bloodshed on the cross, paid in full the debt of sin. Can you say amen to that? Yeah. And so let me ask you this. Once you get your credit card bill after you've used it for the month, how many times do you pay that bill? One time. In other words, once you've paid the credit card bill and you've mailed it and you sent it away, you don't turn around uh, the next day and try to pay it again, do you? Or the next day, do you try to pay it again? Why don't you try to pay it multiple times? Because it's already been paid. Pastor Keith, help me get this. I want you to catch up with me. How many times do you pay it? One time. Why? Because that's all that was due. It's paid in what? Full. It's been paid for. So when Jesus paid the price for sin, how many times did he pay it? One time. He paid it one time. And so it's important that you understand that because if you don't really grasp that, you're going to get really confused about some things. Now, when Jesus preached his first inaugural sermon in Matthew chapter, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. We won't go there. He goes through so many things there. You've got to understand that Jesus was the greatest law preacher that has ever lived. Because Jesus was preaching the law to people who were under the law who had watered down the requirements of the law and tried to make themselves feel like that they were actually accomplishing something by keeping the law which none of them were keeping the law and that was Jesus's point. And the whole purpose, the Bible says, of the law is to point us and to make sin exceedingly sinful that we need a Savior and that we can't keep it. And so Jesus in Matthew 5 and verse 48 he ends that chapter there by saying, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So I want you to see right there. Now, listen what Jesus told them. He said, be ye perfect, if you're King James reading. Be perfect. And, he, and, and then they're thinking, well, how perfect is he talking? He said, as perfect as your Father in heaven is. Now, does anybody in here think that you meet that requirement on your own? No. But that's God's standard. So I've told you this over and over, but to to go to heaven, to pass, you got to make 100. 99.9 won't do it. A 70 is not passing with God. God don't grade on the curve. He doesn't want your best efforts. Some people say this, now don't get mad with me because I tear up some religious stuff, but they say, well, I give my life to the Lord. Well, you didn't have a life to give him. Not really. Now I know what they mean by that, and I'm not trying to, Split hairs here. But when you say, I gave my life to God, you didn't have any life. That's why Jesus came. He came to give them life. He said, the the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have what? Life. Because you didn't have a life. Paul said you were dead. You were dead in what? In trespasses and sin. You were born dead. You were born a sinner. You're not a sinner because you've committed sins. You're a sinner because you was born a sinner. And if you can understand that you were born a sinner, and Paul taught that in Romans, that if you can understand that you were born a sinner, he said, by one man's transgression, Adam, many were made born sinners. Therefore, what do sinners do? They sin. Why? Because they were born sinners. Right? So if you can understand and believe and accept and grasp what the Bible says, that you were born a sinner, therefore you sin, then you can begin to grasp what happens when you get born again. Because when you get born again, you're born again righteous. Not by any acts. In other words, see, you were, you're not a sinner because something you did, an action. You're a sinner because you were born that way because of Adam's transgressions was imparted to you. All right? So when you get born again, you're not righteous because you do righteous deeds or acts, you're righteous because God made you righteous. He gave you his righteousness. He imparted his righteousness. Him who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, but it's in Jesus Christ. God's not pretending that you're righteous, even though he knows you're not. In your spirit, you are righteous. And every scripture in the Bible and every promise is to the righteous. If you're not righteous, the scriptures are not yours. For the prayers of a righteous man accomplishes much do you think that's just one special dude in the church go to get that guy to pray for you because he's the righteous one no if you're born again you're righteous well I don't feel it ain't about what you feel you don't always do righteous do you no none of us do I could be a great Christian if I didn't have to drive with crazy people on the road with me but I, <clears throat> that's one of my areas of tremendous weakness because people got, I don't know where they got their license, but they didn't get it at the same place I did. They don't understand yield and stop and, you know, <laughs> they just don't understand it. And sometimes I want to wave at them. I know y'all better than that. Y'all just pray I'll get where y'all at, okay? Hebrews chapter 10 verse 2 says, for then, in other words, he said, it tells us in verse 1 that the animal sacrifices had no ability to make the worshipers who were bringing them perfect. But God said, and I just read it, he wants you to be perfect. So if God's standard is perfection and we're not perfect, how are you going to get that? Not by anything that you do, but by believing in faith. Righteousness don't come by behavior, it comes by faith. And so it says, if it had worked, it said, for then, in verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, if it worked, they would have stopped it after they it, it took care of the problem. For the worshipers, how many times? Once purified, would have had no more awareness, consciousness of sins. Now, I'm not trying to be mean and all this stuff. Man, when I was, I just wish I had known this when I got really born again because I was around people. And I want to tell you, a lot of churches, I don't want to say most, but a lot of churches, particularly in America, all they do is remind people of their sins every Sunday. And they keep a sin consciousness. And and, and 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 that's not what the Bible teaches. It says if the sacrifice for sin works, then you don't have any more consciousness of sin. So you don't live your life as a believer always daily conscious of sin. You become Christ conscious, not sin conscious. And it's a totally different way of living. In verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Now, he's talking about every year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, as, uh, as the Jews call it, and, and so uh, that's, that's what he's referring to. So there was a yearly reminder of sin when the priest would offer sins uh, for, for the nation, uh, sacrifice for the sins of the nation. But that's not, that's, we, we remind people every uh, uh, Sunday, and many times the devil reminds you every day. In verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. Right there you see that God's purpose was to take away the sin of the world. Now, yeah, I know you know this. John the Baptist on this baptism of Jesus says, Behold the Lamb of God that does what? Taketh away the sin of the world. Not the sin of the church, not the sin of those who confess their sins, but the sin of the entire world. Now, your big thing right here is you have to believe that or not. You either believe that or you don't believe that. But if you really believe that he took away the sin of the world, then that would include yours, right? So you're not guilty before God any longer. I'm not encouraging sin. I'm not saying sin's not a big deal. Sin's a real big deal. That's why Jesus came. That's why he became sin. But I'm telling you, you don't live now, born again, with a consciousness and an awareness of sin and always thinking about sin. That's why most diets do not work because you're thinking about food. And that's your problem, right? Right? I told you to try to conquer sin, you know, by preaching on sin is like trying to conquer, you know, uh, eating sweets by staring at chocolate pie. Just It's just not going to work. It's self-defeating. And that's, the Bible says that the law actually makes sin more uh, enticing to us. And uh, But it says in those sacrifices, verse 3, there's a reminder, for it's not possible that bulls... And goats' blood can take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body. Talking about Jesus. Jesus' body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Why didn't God have any pleasure in that? Because it didn't work. It didn't work. It just covered them. It didn't remove them. And so then he says in verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book that is written of me to do your will. And that's Jesus saying, I've come to do your will. What's God's will? To take away the sin of the world. Now, previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offering for sin, you did not desire, nor did you have any pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And he takes away the first, the old covenant, that he might establish the second, the new covenant. Right? By that will we have been, now notice the the language there. I know that's not our English. By that will we have been sanctified. Through the offering of what? Of the body of Jesus Christ. How many times? And, ha- and, and for who? Once and for all. For everybody. Now, God said it's not his will that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Right? All right. But he, he, he paid the price for everybody. So that's why when you come to the, you know, and you come before the Lord and you go, Well, you just don't know what I've done, Pastor, I've been a real bad person. I mean, don't don't dare exalt your sins over the blood of Jesus. How dare you say that you're so great at sin and that God can't forgive you? That's to minimize and to marginalize the blood of Jesus as insufficient to take care of your problem. Right? So that's pride and arrogance. So knock it off. It's religious, and we don't want to hear it. Because we want to allow you to exalt your sin or your behavior above the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's not being mean, it's just being truthful, right? Amen. But I used to didn't know that, and I'd give him a pat on the back and bless your heart. But bless your hearts don't, don't do anything, okay? But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins, how long? Forever. This man, who's that man he's talking about? Jesus. After he offered, how many sacrifices? For sin, and I want to say this to you right here. I should have said it at the beginning. Every time you see the word sin or sins here in Hebrews, it's a noun. It's a noun. You know what a noun is, right? Person, place, or thing. It's not actions. Now, I've taught you that. Most of you, if you come here often, that, that, that sin primarily is a noun. In the book of the New Testament, there's Sin mentioned more than any other book, Romans. There's only one time in that whole book uh, of Romans that sin is a verb. Well, what's that got to do with anything? It's got everything to do with everything. Because you think of sin as something I did. I did something I sinned. That's a sin. Sin is an entity. It's a thing. It's a problem. It, it, it's, it's, what, it's what entered in through the rebellion in the garden. And Jesus came to put an end to sin. He became sin. He didn't become an action when it says him who knew no sin became sin, he became a noun. He became that thing, that entity, that, that, that thing called sin. And sin was nailed to the cross. And sin was defeated at the cross. So after this one offering, he, in verse 12, it said he offered one sacrifice for sins forever. He sat down at the right hand of God. Now, why did Jesus sit down? Y'all think he was tired? He's like, man, I am so wore out. Y'all move while I can sit down. Jesus sat down because he is distinguishing him, himself from the Levitical priesthood who never sat down. The only piece of furniture they didn't well the one major piece of furniture I would say to you that they didn't have in the Old Testament Mosaic tabernacle is they had no chairs for the priest to sit in. But why? Because they can't sit. Why? Because their job is never completed. They're continually offering sacrifices for sin. Never was, Jesus offered one sacrifice and then when he was through, he sat down. Now, where does the Bible say that you and I are as born-again believers? We are seated with him. Now, let me ask you this. Are you seated and resting in Christ and what he accomplished, or are you running around trying to do your own penance? That's what it means to rest in the Lord. When, it, when Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4 talks about there remain a rest for the people of God, the children of God, that there's a Sabbath rest, Jesus is the Sabbath. It's not a day of the week anymore. It's a person. His name's Jesus. And you enter into that Sabbath rest, which is Christ, and you rest in his work. You cease from your own labors. Now, it doesn't make you lazy. It don't mean you don't do good things. It don't mean you don't do righteous things. It doesn't mean you don't do benevolent things. But you're not doing those to obtain any kind of relationship with God or obtain righteousness from God. You're doing it because you already have that and you're living out of that. Therefore, you are benevolent. You are kind. You are gracious. You are generous. You are giving. You are thoughtful. You are merciful. Come on, y'all. Because that's who you are, and you're being true to who your spirit is. And you're living out of that, and it's called being led by the spirit, walking in the spirit. Amen? Amen. And so look at this, this this right here. And he says, he sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Now, his enemies are made his footstool when you and I believe what I'm preaching, and you rise up, and you walk in that. And you live with that awareness. And I'm not sin conscious, I'm Christ conscious. Well, what do you do when you sin? Realize who you really are, and get up and shake yourself. That's why the Bible says a righteous man falls how many times? But he gets back up again. How can he get back up after he's fallen? Because he knows he's righteous. Even if he does fall, he's still righteous. He didn't do righteous. He didn't behave righteous, he didn't conduct himself righteous, but he is righteous on the inside. Who he really is, who he was really made by the being born again and putting his faith in Jesus is a righteous man. And so he remembers that and he renews his thinking to that and he gets back up and he doesn't let that sin which has no power and dominion over him anymore. And you don't have to go to 14 years of counseling. You just go, that's not who I am. I'm not that. I'm not an addict. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not I'm not that. I'm born again. And on the inside, I'm pound for pound, molecule for molecule, DNA, just like Jesus. As he is, so am I in this world. As he is, 1 John chapter 4 says, as Christ is, as he is, so are we in this world. Well, where is Christ? He's seated in heavenly places by the right hand of the Father. There's no more work to be done. I'm righteous in him. And so when you start confessing that righteousness, that's what gives you power over sin. Because it's his power that defeated it, not yours. It's not your tenacity, your willpower, trying, harder, straining. No, that's not, how, that's, not, that's not how Jesus done it. And look in verse 14. This one really bothers people. For by one offering, he has, not will, not over yonder in the glory land, by and by after a while, but he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The word sanctified means set apart or made holy. Now, who do you think are those who are being sanctified and set apart and made holy? Those who are putting their trust and faith in Him. That's what Ephesians chapter 4 teaches us. It says that it says that, that, that we were created in true righteousness and holiness. Paul said, renew your thinking, put on that person, because that's who you are. And so by one offering. He has done this. He's perfected forever all those who are being sanctified, who put their faith in him by the Holy Spirit also. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said this before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. Now listen to this. After those days, says the Lord, and I'll put my laws into their hearts. That way, remember when Moses got this law on tablets and he came down and broke them? Okay. Uh, God saying, I'm going to give them. It ain't going to be like that. It's not it going to be like that at all. And when he's talking about the laws into the heart, let me tell you what he's not doing. And I hear people teaching this, it's insane. He is not writing the Ten Commandments on your heart. Why does he want to go to something you couldn't keep? That's why Jesus came, because he couldn't keep it. It's got nothing to do with the Ten Commandments or or the other 413 of them. He's writing his law, the law of grace, on the lining of your heart, it says here. In other words, he's giving you the power to keep it, because it's inside you. Didn't you say you got a new heart when you got born again? Put a new heart, create a new heart in me. The Lord's in my heart. I invited Jesus into my heart. Well, he's not going to move in a dirty house. You think God would, the Bible says when you're born again, you're made one spirit with Jesus. You're a one spirit. You think God would join his son who is righteous, holy, sinless, spotless into something filthy? No. That means on the inside where you're born again, where his spirit dwells in your born again, human, your human regenerate, you understand, your spirit man. You have a real spirit, man. You are—you are You are, are three-dimensional, like God. You are spirit, soul, and body. Before you met Jesus, your spirit was dead. That's why you would try anything to try to fill it, because you knew something was wrong. You was missing something. You were dead in sin. I mean, how do you, I mean, what kind of salesman do you have to be to convince people to do all this stuff that they do? Okay, try this drug here. You do, you know, one out of uh, four people that even touches it one time becomes addicted to it and will sell everything, their soul, to keep it coming. What kind of salesman do you have to be to sell that? Can you imagine that person in the car business or some other business? I mean, they'd be a billionaire. If they can sell somebody that, you know, you you understand what I'm saying? There's a desire in man for life. And the enemy's trick is to get you to to think it's over in this place, this place, or or with this thing. And, and and then it says in verse 17, then he adds this. He said, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember how long? Now, is God a liar or not? He says that this new covenant, this is going to be the real big kicker about this new covenant. I'm not going to remember your sins. Now, does he remember them or not? What about the one you're going to do tomorrow? Does he going to remember that one? uh uh-uh. We're going to get to there. Hang on. No. No. Okay, so how can you tell me that the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin? The Holy Spirit's God, right? Y'all just help me. I'm a little confused with some of y'all's talk. So you, you go around and you say the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin. No, that was your own conscience, did that. How can the Holy Spirit, who is God, convict you of what he don't remember? Do you think God the Father is saying, well, I won't remember your sins no more than the Holy Spirit said, don't worry about it, Father, I'll remind you. That's messed up. And I know you think you got a verse that says he does, but you don't. The only verse in the New Testament that says, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth has come, the Holy Spirit, he will convince, convince, the same word, convict the world of sin for they do not know me. The Holy Spirit's not your schoolmaster to tap you on the wrist with a ruler every time. you. That's not what he does. The only thing the Holy Spirit is trying to do is convince you that you are really the righteous of God in Christ. And to stand up and live out of that. And if you're not the righteous God and you're not been born again. Hey, guess what? Get born again yes, then. Get, get, get born again. And so he says in verse 18, now there is, when there is remission of these. What does that word remission mean? Forgiveness. There is no longer an offering for sin. Now, I want them to put up the message translation, the message translation. Uh, translation of the Bible, and I'm, I'm in verse 14. This is what it says it says, uh, It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. You see that? They got it up, and uh, it's in there. Just read down a little bit. Yeah, all right, it was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person. To perfect some very imperfect people. By that single offering, talking about Jesus, he did everything that needed to be done for everyone who takes part in the purifying process. How do you take part? You, 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 you accept Christ. The Holy Spirit confirms this, says this, this new plan I'm making with Israel isn't going to be written on... Uh, Thank you. On paper, is going to be chiseled. Uh, is, it is not going to be chiseled in stone. It's not going to be written on paper. This time, look what he says. I'm writing out the plan in them, carving it on the lining of their hearts. In verse 17, he concludes, I'll, I'll forever wipe the slate clean of their sins. Remember, sins there is not an action. It's a noun. Once... Sins are taken care of for good. There is no longer any need to offer sacrifices for them. Wasn't that good? Doesn't that kind of help you see it maybe a little better? Now, let me tell you what happened. And they sung about it today even in the songs. I didn't even tell them to sing them. That's just how good the Holy Spirit is. When Jesus Christ died, you remember in the Old Covenant temple, there was a veil that hung between the Holy Spirit of holies and the holy place. Behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant uh, and all that, you know. When Jesus said, it is finished, the veil was ripped from, the Bible says, the top to the bottom. And don't think this was like some thin bed sheet. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that that material was four inches thick. He said that actually when it ripped... And from, this is history now. This is not in Scripture. Jewish uh, historian Josephus says that they actually took some of that old, because uh, they had to redo the, the veil, but they took it down, and they, they yoked four yoke of oxen together to try to pull it apart and could not pull it apart. That's how strong it was. Yet it was ripped, and the, priest, the high priest were trying to figure out a reason that it ripped. But it ripped from the top to the bottom because God did this. And God said, that veil that has separated me from you, the veil, which the Bible says was Jesus' body that became sin, that veil has been ripped. There is nothing now separating you from me anymore. I have dealt myself with the sin problem. Now, that ought to make your head butt the chair in front of you. I'm telling you. I mean, he has dealt with the sin problem. Well, why do I still sin? Well, come back next Sunday and I'll tell you. <laughs> We sin because we believe a lie. And every day you and I are faced with all kind of decisions to make. And in that moment, we can yield ourselves to the mind of Christ, which was gifted to us when we got born again, or we can yield ourselves to our natural mind. We sin because we're not, our mind has not yet been renewed to the fullness of God, our mind, which is part of your soul. But as far as your spirit, man, living out of that revelation, that's what changes our lives. Knowing who your real identity is and confessing that identity, and so when that veil was ripped from the top to the bottom, God was saying, "I'm done with the old covenant; it has become obsolete." And that, that's what He says. God says, "I have uh, I, the old covenant has been totally fulfilled in my Son Jesus Christ. He kept it to the letter, and uh, actually Hebrews eight and thirteen says that He has made the first one obsolete." And what is obsolete, is the Bible says, is outdated and will soon disappear. That's, that's Hebrews 8, 13. Now, Christ was a perfect sacrifice, and he instantly made the old covenant obsolete. Now, God's perspective, listen to me, is that he, it serves no further purpose anymore. Yet, now listen to me, after Jesus died on the cross, buried and was resurrected, the Jews continued to bring animals to the temple to be Uh, sacrificed in ritual sacrifice. They still brought the animals. Now, they did that for 30 more years until A.D. 70. Now, God didn't come in there mad and and wipe them off the face of the earth. But listen to me. Now, I want you to think about something. Imagine how offensive those sacrifices must have been in the eyes of heaven. Just imagine each sacrifice that they offered, each, each subsequent lamb or oxen or bull, was declaring Jesus died for nothing. It, it was like saying, every time the priest did, did that, he was like saying, God, your son's death means nothing to me. It was insufficient, inadequate, meant nothing. His blood was, was, was nothing. That's why it talks about in the Bible about trampling his blood underneath our feet, counting it as an unholy thing. It's just no, no value. And and so what an insult, what a a blasphemy. Yet they did this, listen, yet no lightning bolts fell from heaven. The ground didn't open up and swallow up these blasphemers. God didn't kill one of them. Yet if you read in Leviticus, there were two of God's men named Abinadad and Nehiyu that offered a sacrifice one time that the Bible called it strange fire. And it said when they did that, fire came immediately from heaven and destroyed both of them. They became burning uh, embers of, of, the, of the power of, of, of offering a wrong sacrifice with a wrong motive. And yet here these blasphemers come and continue to offer lambs and they live and just walk around and everything's fine and they, they suffer no, no, no problem. The fact that they lived is a proof of the grace of God and things had changed. Things had changed radically and dramatically. And they continued to offer those sacrifices for 30 years. And you go, well, that man, I can't believe they did that. Now, listen to me. Don't, don't get mad. This is for the people on Facebook or whatever. Y'all don't get mad at me either. I shouldn't have said that. This is for all of us. You say, well, man, I can't believe they were so stupid to keep bringing sacrifices to try to get their sin problem dealt with after Jesus had done what he done. Right. Now I would ask you, what kind of sacrifice do you bring? What do you try to do to get God to forgive you? Number one, if you're still trying to get him to forgive you and you're begging for him to forgive you, you don't believe he has. Because if you believe he has, why would you be asking? It's going to get real quiet up in here. And then when you ask him to forgive you for your sin, why do you ask him a second time for the same sin? Or a third time? Or a fifth time or... Three weeks, or some of you never arrive at the place you feel like you've ever been forgiven by God, and you live miserable, and you turn to other things to try to so you know solve that pain, medicate it, make it go away, because you won't forgive yourself. Why won't you forgive yourself? Because you don't believe God's forgiven you. What is the sacrifice that you bring? Even after Jesus has died, you, no, you're not bringing a lamb down here to be, you know, cutting his throat and all that deal. But, but what are you bringing? Well, you bring, you know, you know, if you cry real hard. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm, I'm not saying that. The Bible teaches two things. It teaches worldly sorrow that leads to death. And it teaches godly sorrow that leads to repentance for salvation. What's well, godly sorrow. It points you to a solution to Jesus. A lot of people are sorry they got caught. <laughs> but it doesn't lead to repentance. And the, by the way, remember, see, these definitions, these words are so vitally important. Repentance does not mean come to the altar, use up all our tissues and cry a lot and tell God how sorry you are for being a, you know, doing a bad thing. No, the word repentance means what? You, you know disgrace. What does it mean? Think differently. Greek word metanoia, think differently. So when Jesus and John the Baptist and everybody said repent and believe, they weren't saying cry and confess your sins, tell God you're sorry. And then, no, no, they were saying think differently. Think differently about what? About God, of how, he, how you approach God, how you live for God, and how you see yourself now. you got to think differently. Because you've not been trained to think like God thinks And that's why our mind is being renewed. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. How are you going to make yourself holy and acceptable to God? You can't. Jesus did. So God says, you present yourself like that to me. Come boldly to my throne room of grace. Don't come in, oh, God, we come to you as humble as we know how. You ever heard them stupid prayers? I didn't say the person that prayed it was stupid, but that's a stupid prayer. It's a prayer denying who the finished work of Jesus comes. Lord, I just come to you. I'm just a worm. Please don't step on me. I've, you know, I'm coming to you. We come to home as we know how. The, Bible's, the Bible said the righteous are bold as a lion. You know why? They're not arrogant because they're not standing in their righteousness. The Bible says our righteousness is filthy rags. Your righteousness is Jesus. So if I'm standing in him, I can come in boldly. I can come in like he's my elder brother. I can come in like I'm kin to him. (laughs) Now I know what Paul was saying when he said, I labor until Christ be formed in you. See, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says, Hebrews 9, 14, how much more? He's talking about if the blood of bulls and goats... Sanctified those that came for, for a season. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who, listen to this, through the eternal spirit, notice capital S, offered what? Himself without spot to God. Cleanse your consciousness, your conscience, your awareness from dead works. What's dead works? Anything you offer God to try to be right with him. To serve the living God. Now, notice it says eternal spirit. Let me ask you this. Is eternity in time or outside of time? I'm going to help you understand something here. Is eternity in time or is eternity outside of time? Outside of time. Which began first, time or eternity? Eternity began. And then God created time as a temporary eruption, interruption rather, in eternity. There will be a day that the Bible says time shall be no more. So the only reason you're dying is because you're wearing a watch. Once you surrender your watch, you don't die. That's eternity. You can't die if you're not getting older. That's the only reason you're dying because you got a watch on your wrist. That's why when you're in eternity, there's not because there won't be no disease anyway. But, but, but cancer don't kill anybody. It's cancer that hooks up with time. That's what kills people. You understand? If it didn't have time on its side, it couldn't kill nobody. It'd be an insignificant flea. be nothing. So when time is removed, that's why you're going to live forever, because time shall be no more. What time is it? That's why some songs that we've sung won't matter. When we've been there 10,000 years, I mean, I know that's going to give me trouble. But then you ain't going to know you've been there 10,000 years. And you're not going to get bored. And it's not going, like, by God, how long have we been here. <laughs> we, we don't understand it, and I'm pretending like I do. And I don't. I don't. But I knew that there will be no time there. So listen to me. Okay, so when I read this verse... When I was wrestling in my past over how could God take care of future sins, and I heard even some of the arguments like that 20 years ago, and I thought, those people are crazy. If you sin today and you don't confess it, then you ain't going to heaven if the rapture happens. And so what kind of life is that? You live in hell all the time because you sin most every day. I don't say you have it circled in red on your calendar. I am going to sin Wednesday this week. I'm going to throw down on some sin. Now, I think if you do have that on your calendar for Wednesday, you, you got a problem. Uh, you might not be born again. You might just be involved in religion. Because when you're really born again, you don't want to do sin. It's not your nature to do sin. And I know that the church teaches you you still have two natures fighting each other. You have a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, and you just depend on which one you listed. That's not the picture. That the, that's not what Jesus accomplished. That wouldn't have been accomplishing very much. the Bible says you are now partakers of his divine nature. So anybody that ever taught you that you still have a sin nature, and a lot of people do. And if you're reading a new international version of the Bible, I'm not saying throw it in the garbage, but in this area they are sadly interpreted the Scripture wrongly. And they use the word flesh, and they will actually say in an NIV, so if you're reading the NIV in this very readable Bible, but you'll be convinced if that's the only Bible you've ever read, you've got a sin nature because they said you do. Well, I want to tell you, the NIV translators are not right because they translated the word sarks, flesh, as, as sin nature, and that's not, that's not the translation by any stretch of the imagination of the original language. But I guess their translator believed in it that you got two, and they went to a church that taught them that you got you know, two, so they put it in their, in their Bible translation. So that's why it is important what you read, and it's important to study the Scriptures. It's important to come to church. Why? Because faith cometh by what? So while you're hearing the Word of God, you know what's coming into you now? What's rising up? Faith is rising up in you. If faith comes by hearing, then faith leaves by not hearing. So you wonder when that thing comes up and you don't have the faith and you don't really believe because you're not hearing the Word of God. You need to dial up the Word of God more. Read the Word of God. Sometimes you're sitting home by yourself, read your Bible, read it out loud where your own ears can hear it. It, it, It's beneficial. Sometimes when when I'm having some type of... Spiritual warfare, I guess you'd call it, going on, and I can't sleep. Man, I put in the earbuds and just play Scripture. I'm like, if the, I don't know if this is the devil or just I had something, I ate something wrong. But if it's going to keep me up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the most of it. And uh, and if it's the devil, I know I'll be going to sleep in about five minutes because he ain't going to let me lay around here Bible all night. <laughs> And I fall asleep and wake up with ear, but that was the devil bothering me, trying to keep me away. (laughs) But see, when I read that eternal spirit, since Jesus offered himself outside of time, so to speak, he's the eternal spirit. That means that, that that took care of every sin, even those that had not been committed yet. Now, I've told you this over and over, and a lot of people that don't believe in the grace of God, that believe in more in law than they do grace, they really hate when grace preachers like me say this because you know, we use it as an argument, and it is, it's a valid argument. You know, how many of your sins were future when Jesus died 2,000 years ago? They hate this. <laughs> all of them. So if you don't believe in future forgiveness of sin, then tough cookies for all of us. Because what we're doing here today, then, is we are awaiting a second crucifixion. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. What is it that causes God to forgive you of sin? Is it you're crying, you're weeping, you're promising him you won't do it again? No. There's only one reason that the Father God would forgive anybody for sin, and that's because the blood was shed. That's what the Bible teaches When's the last time Jesus shed blood? 2,000 years ago. So he shed that blood for my sin and yours. Now, I did a blog just a few weeks ago where somebody had wrote in, and they asked me this question. They said, you know, I was raised in church, and and what I heard often was that, okay, now as a believer, and when you sin, then Jesus, what he does is he takes and applies that blood, his blood, to your sin." So you have this imagery, a picture of Jesus constantly standing around again. He's not seated anymore. He had to get back up. He's not seated in heavenly places because obviously his work's not finished because now you're sinning and he's got to deal with it. So he takes and applies his blood again fresh to each sin that you do. What a busy Jesus that would make him. And it's insane and it's taught widely in churches in America. Somebody's preaching it in Valdosta right now. I can just feel it. But that's an erroneous teaching. Sometimes they say, well, you need the brother. Well, your problem is, uh, brother, fellow Christian, is you need to put that sin under the blood. Well, that's, that's making you the Savior. That's making you the high priest. You, listen, if your sin ain't under the blood, it ain't getting there. Because <laughs> the blood's done been shed. And it only covered what was under. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus took away the sin of the world. Why can't we just believe that? Why can't we just accept that he took away the sin from, And I know because it's so easy, you look around and what's people doing? in like crazy. Seems like we got a problem here. Houston, come in. I thought he took away the sin of the world. He did. But you still have a choice that you can make in what you're going to do. And sin shall not have dominion over you, Paul said. You are no longer a slave to sin. But if a man goes into jail cell and he unlocks the cell and he unlocks every door, subsequent door to the outside and then the exterior gate, and he says, "You're free in Jesus name. But if you don't get up and walk out, you're still living in jail. You eating prison food. It ain't God's fault. you just don't believe. You're scared to leave the cell. You' scared to believe that the gospel is as good news as it says it is. You're afraid. So all I can tell you is just enjoy the prison rations. But if you want to, you can walk outside. You can put one foot in front of another and walk in faith and believe the word of God and live as who you've really been made by being born again. And that's the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, so I'm going to say this right here. Repeat confession of sin is not in the Bible. I know you think it is. But listen to me. You only have one verse Anybody only has one, listen, one verse in the whole New Testament that seems to link confession with our sin. And that is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And everybody goes to that as their Bible proof that that guy's wrong and, and you got to confess each and every sin. So if you have, listen to me, if you have to confess each and every sin, which number one, your memory's not that good. And there's things that are sinful to God that you don't even count as sin. Because God don't have big ones and little ones and this one and that one and right, none of that. And so if your salvation and entrance into heaven is contingent upon your confessing and memory to confess, then we all fried. We all going to hell with the handbasket. The Bible says saying sin is not just what you do, it's what you don't do. You know, it's more than drinking and smoking and running with girls that do. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's more than that. The Bible said if you know to do good and don't do it, it is sin. God says anything you do without faith is sin. Y'all want me to preach a while? So just knock it off that you, you, you're keeping your slate clean every day. You ain't doing nothing. You better put all your trust in Jesus and that he has forgiven you and then live out of that revelation of who he made you. And here's, here's verse, 1 John 1 and 9. You know, the only verse, Jesus, none of the apostles ever taught this. None of, everything Paul ever said about forgiveness is always in the past you, you've been forgiven. Now, this is where it gets confusing. Hang on, my time's getting away from it. But listen to me. Now, in the, in the, in the words in red, remember Jesus, before he went to the cross. Now, you've got to remember, when, when does the New Testament start? Not Matthew chapter 1. When does it start? Resurrection. The will is not in enforced until the will person has died. You can't get the goodies until they bury them. Even if you are in the will, don't run try to get them first before they did. You don't get them. So Jesus is preaching law. He hadn't went to the cross yet. And this is what he said one time. He said, if you do not forgive men their trespassers, neither will your heavenly father forgive you of your trespassers. Y'all remember him saying that? He said, if you don't forgive men, your father ain't going to forgive you. You know, people take that verse and they preach the fire out of it. And they make everybody here feel guilty that if you got all against your heart against anybody and you ain't forgiven, you're going to hell if you, you know, if you don't get it straight. And that's called legalism and trying to, you know, it's just crazy. Now, I'm not advocating not forgiving people, but I have, there's people on the earth right now that I wish the Lord would have gone take them on out of here. This gets on my nerves to see them. I know I'm a preacher and I should be, you know, better than that, but you ain't been hurt by them like I have. They stabbed me, gutted me, sliced me every which way. And I don't mean physically, but I just mean it hurt me. And David said one time in the the psalm, he said, if it had not been my brother, I could have took it. But this was the guy that did me like this that I went to church with. That's what David said. Read it. Check it out. There's a lot of good stuff in that Bible. I encourage you to read it. But David said, man, it it was one that broke bread with me in the house of the Lord. David said, man, I had a hard time with this. Jesus said, if you don't forgive. But then after the cross, Paul preached a different message. He said, forgive those who have hurt you as Christ has forgiven you. So God said, you you should forgive people. God's given you the grace to forgive them. You forgive them, why? Did they deserve it? No. Did they ask for it? No. You forgive them because you're a forgiven person. And it'll actually make you feel better. Because unforgiveness, we've heard it said many times, is like, you know, drinking poison and wanting them to drop dead. <laughs> Just don't work. I know, see, and then how are you going to be a grace person when you want God to get them? <laughs> see, you can't pray them old prayers David did. David would be praying prayers in his home, like, smite them, oh God. Let not their name be written with the righteous. I mean, he'd be like, kill them, God, now. David did, man. Read his prayers. You can't pray them prayers now. They're not appropriate. We're under grace, not under law. You're supposed to forgive people. Why? Because you've been forgiven. And when you enjoy that forgiveness, it becomes a lot easier to release that forgiveness. Because it's God's forgiveness in you. Amen? Amen. And and, and so, this is what I want you to see. Uh, If we confess our sins, and and I would say to you here, you can check me out on it it, if it means anything to you, the original language. The word sins there is not an action. It's not a verb. It's a noun. If we confess our sins, like the word men, is that a noun or a verb? Men. M-E-N. It's a noun. If I say men's, is that a noun or a verb? Y'all better get up off y'all's English teachers. Men's trousers on sale. Mens is a noun. Trousers is a noun. You know what I'm saying? Mens trousers—that's not a verb. It's a noun. So sins. Don't let the S fool you here. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And notice what it don't say. And but if they don't confess, they're not forgiven. Notice it don't say that. That's where people add to it. And it says and to cleanse us from how much. All what? I thought when you got born again, you was righteous. So if he's writing this to believers, then he's contradicting his own Bible because he told me that when I got born again, I'm righteous. I'm the righteous of God. And, 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 and now he's telling me that I'm, I've got unrighteousness in me, and I need to confess it. That's kind of schizo, God. You've got to make up kind of how you're going to work this thing. He's writing to unbelievers. This is the only verse in the Bible where confession is connected with his forgiveness. And the Greek word there, and I've taught you this, the word confession, Greek word, I'm not making this stuff up. The Greek word for confess is homo legio. Homo legio. Homo means same kind. Okay? Legio is the word of God, God's word, legos, the word of God. So homo legios is... To the same. In other words, when he's saying I want you to confess, he's saying I want you to agree, it means to agree with. The word lego means to agree with the word. To come into agreement with the word of God. Now when the church hears the word confess, they think of sin. But the word confess means to agree with God's word. So it says that that, that here uh, if we confess, if we if we agree with God that we are sinful that we have a sin problem then he's faithful and just to forgive us of that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness now now in this passage how do you know that John's writing to to unbelievers and not to Christians well just because of this he said it's, it says that they in verse 8 they are deceived because they thought that they were without sin uh, it says in verse 6 that they are people that he's talking to who are walking in darkness. Does that sound like a believer? It says in verse 9 that they need to be purified from all unrighteousness. And it says that by them insisting that they, don't, they have never sinned, they make God out to be a liar in verse 10 because that's why Jesus came because there was a sin problem. So all I'm trying to tell you is this, and I could spend a lot more time on it, and I have written about it, and it's in my book, and I devote a whole chapter to it. But he's writing to a group of people called Gnostics. And and Gnosticism taught that you are without sin. They do not participate in the sin of Adam. They say they are totally free from that. And therefore, they say they don't need a Savior because they don't have a sin issue. And they say they have never, ever sinned. Therefore, they don't need anything. God's saying, you make me a liar. And God's saying, if you would just agree with me that you are a sinner and you do need a Savior, I would be faithful and just and I would forgive you of all that sin and I would cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. That's all that verse is saying. And in, the, in, in, in other verses in chapter 2, you just need to keep reading more than this. that one verse in 1 John. Read all of 1 John and then come back and talk to me. Because he says clearly in chapter 2 and subsequent chapters in that, in that little epistle that you are forgiven and he puts it in the past. But here he's talking to people that have not been born again. So if you don't see yourself in need for forgiveness, then you're truly lost. And that's all he's telling them. Confess that you, are, that you have a sin problem. Don't tell me that you've never sinned. Sure, I mean, what if somebody, I've never, I've never committed a sin in my life. Well, you're a liar. You know, I mean, you're, in, you're, you're deceived, okay? And so the word confession, Romans 10, 10, and we're almost done. Romans 10, 10, this is the faithful, you know, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10 is how you get saved, right? And I've told you this over and over. Just listen to me. All right, in Romans chapter 10, that's how you get saved, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, right? If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you're saved. Is that right? Y'all just tell me if I say something in the Bible. And then in verse 10, it tells you how that, how that what it looks like. For with the heart, where do you believe? With the heart, one believes into what? Why don't you just believe that you're righteous? God says this is the whole key of salvation. When you get saved, what you're believing in is that you're now righteous. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Do you see the word sin there anywhere? Average church in America, somebody comes up front, preacher, I want to get saved. Bow your head, close your eyes, repeat after me, say the sinner's prayer. Father, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. And first, what they do, first thing they focus them on is what? A sin problem that God's already taken care of. Well, that is their problem. No, it ain't. That's not their problem at all. Their problem is they don't believe in the work of Jesus for themselves. That's why in the whole 10th chapter of Romans, which talks about being saved, listen to me. Not the word sin does not appear. I know some of you probably get tired of hearing me say this. I don't get tired of saying it, but at the Philippian jailhouse, when Paul and Silas, listen, they're in jail, and, the, and they're going to be executed in the morning, and, and they pray at midnight, and God shakes the whole place down, you know. It's where Elvis has got his own jailhouse rock, in case you all know that. <laughs> and it's dark, and so the jailer pulls the sword, they're going to commit suicide. Paul hollers and says, whoa, bro, we all in here? Never need to kid yourself, we ain't, we ain't you know... We had to look at his split. We were right here. And then this man comes to the apostle, and he sees the power of God. Now, he's seen the power of God. He's experienced it. And he says to this apostle, this great apostle, what must I do to be saved? How many knows that's in the Bible? Paul said, bow your head, close your eyes, repeat after me. No, he didn't do that, did he? Because there is no sinner's prayer in the Bible. So that's why people get aggravated with me, because I don't play church games i just we got a book why don't we go buy it you know it's a new concept but hey let's just go buy the book we got it's not in there is it evil now if you're sitting here and that's how you came into kingdom on this on a repeat after me prayer i'm not trying to make you say you ain't you know you didn't get the right ticket that you're not born again what makes you born again is not saying a prayer though you're not you're not born again by a prayer You're not born again by reciting something that some religious person told you to recite. You're not born again because I do this. You're not born again because I say you are. You're born again because you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was real. And he was spotless and sinless. And he died on the cross. And he paid in that one sacrifice for the sin of the entire world. And you cast all your confidence and belief and faith in him and his sacrifice. That's how you get born again. That's how your life has changed. And Paul's great answer to this Philippian jailer who is a sinner, what must I do to be saved, Paul? He says, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and your whole household as well. And period, that's the end. Stop all the other religious mess and stop complicating what is so simple and stop charging for what is free. And stop putting a price on the grace of God. And I sat there and I listened to a preacher on, on, on the radio just two days ago. And, and I was riding some distance and I, and I was just listening. And I thought, man, this guy's a grace guy. This guy's got grace down and man, he was just, oh, I was enjoying it. And he was talking about the, 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 the sacrifice of Jesus and the forgiveness of Christ. And we're, we, you know, he's paid the price. And then he turned right around and he told me everything was free and it was by the grace of God. And I was forgiven and I was feeling so good. And I was like, man, dude, I like you, man. I could go to church with you. And then he turned right around in the next breath. He quoted 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 and says, if you don't confess your sins, you're not forgiven. And he put a price And reverse what Jesus did. Because God said the whole world has been forgiven. But he said if you don't confess it. Your sins one by one. You're not forgiven. And so I was raised in in, in a certain very legal fellowship. And I lived my life for over a decade. Always in fear that I would miss the rapture. Not only was it just fear of missing the rapture. Then they told me I had to get my head chopped off. Just nice stuff like that, you know. And I said, you know, just real nice stuff. Help you sleep at night. And like if I come home one day, you know, and we just had a bad day and, you know, kick the dog and cuss the cat, you know, whatever. And then, boom, the rapture comes in. I'm hellbound. Here I go. And all the 30 years of living for God before that don't mean nothing because that one sin. Because they said, no sin shall enter in. And if you committed one sin and you ain't put it under the blood, and you, that is a miserable, horrible lie. And I lived it for more than a decade. I lived every day of my life. And I was constantly, and, and so when I, when I, every time, this is how I began every prayer. They taught me that you got to clean the deck every time before you can even talk to God because he won't even listen to you. Lord, I, I, you know, I want to pray, but I know I got to clear the deck off of all the rubbish so, Father, please forgive me of every sin, every sin I've committed today, today those that I had not committed yet, those that I did do and didn't know. And, you know, oh, Father, please forgive me of sin for I'm a sinner and I need to say, please forgive me. Lord. And so I spent all my prayer time talking to God about sin. And then I think now he'll listen to me because he won't be mad at me. And then I'll start telling him what I really want and need and whatever, you know. And then every time you sin, and then I, th- th- this was my experience. Okay, so I was sinning and I rated sins. God don't, but I did. So I would have a sin that I would rate like that's pretty bad, you know. You shouldn't have cussed that guy out because you're supposed to be a preacher. What about you, you know? So that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. I'm really ashamed of myself, hoping nobody saw that. <clears throat> but I feel like I feel like scum. I feel like quitting. I just so that's really bad. I'm heartbroken. So God, please forgive me for that. I'm so sorry. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be that person. Please, Father, forgive me. Then I didn't feel forgiven. And I'd spend that whole day talking to him about that sin. I wake up the next day, I'm back on it again because I don't feel forgiven. And so I spend about a week probably on that one sin until I start feeling better. You know what makes me feel better? The distance between me and that sin. Not the blood of Jesus, not faith, it's just time. And before long, I just try to, with all my heart, I just try to stand on my tiptoes and believe, well, I believe he's you know, forgive me. Because he said in 1 John 1 and 9, if we we'll confess our sin, He faithful and just to forgive us. So even though I don't feel forgiven, I know he said in 1 John 1 and 9 that he will forgive me. So I just have to believe that he did, and I'll just try my best and go on. That is one sick, religious, miserable way to live. And I'm a little bit ticked off that religion taught me that. And I'm going to spend every waking day that I got, and I'm going to write it, I'm going to print it, I'm going to preach it. I ain't sitting down, I ain't shutting up, I ain't quieting off. and I'm going to preach the goodness of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and, 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 because people need to know it. Now, I know that there are some that thinks preaching like this will make people sin like crazy. Oh, they'll sin willy-nilly. He's given them a license to sin. Nobody in here has a license to sin. You may have a license like this to drive a car, but you don't have a license to sin. You don't need one. Nobody's ever checked it. Nobody's ever, come. hey, you got a license to sin like that? No. Just have at it. Sin is stupid. It hurts you, and it hurts people you care about. I advise against it. Don't do it. I'm not for it. The power to live free and overcome sin, though, is not you trying harder. It's you resting in the work of Jesus, confessing and agreeing with God that he did take care of the sin problem, and confess who you really are inside. And then, so this is what was so hard for me when I first got a hold of the grace. When I when I do sin, when I do sin, and and I don't have it on the counter. But when I do see, because the Bible says the real grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to sin. It says the New Testament grace teaches you to say no to sin. So if you're sitting under grace teaching and you think it's like sin willy-nilly, it don't matter. You're not sitting under the grace teaching. But sitting under grace teaching teaches you the power to say no to sin and no to ungodliness. Because of what Jesus did on the inside. And so, but when you do sin, this is the approach that I have now. Where, Brother Dale, do you ever tell God you're sorry for your sin? Uh, sure. I'm, I'm, I, he's a real person. Ask Sister Jill, did I ever tell her I'm sorry for things that I said or didn't say or whatever? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a perfect guy. So if I hurt her feelings or something like that, darling, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry. Right, you know, and I know that's different. She's not gone, but it's, it's, it's different. But even God, I, f- I feel like he's a real person. And so when I've done something that ain't very godly or godlike, you know, I say, Papa, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. Just because they was an idiot on the road don't mean I got to lower myself and be an idiot like them. I mean, just the other day, and I'm so, just the other day, and I'm not proud of none. But I'm just saying I'm a real guy. Okay, now, you know, I might not know if I lost. I'm out on North Valley Austin. I'm finna turn to go to Smoking Pig and to meet a brother that wanted to meet with me. I'm going for a Christian meeting. Hallelujah. You know, shoot a mosquito, I'm ready to go, you know, kind of deal. But there's a big semi, 18-wheeler, so he's making the left turn. Well, I can't see nothing but the rear end of that semi. All I know, he's turning because he got the green arrow. I'm right behind the brother. I'm, but as soon as I got within view, I mean, the, the people on the other side, <laughs> it was just one person. I mean, and they were waving at me with one finger and blowing the horn and just, you know, it was all up in my Kool-Aid. I'm talking about, ain't no way you that important. This Ford truck that's got to make this little turn here, that's going to delay you, what, five seconds? So I waved back. I know, go find a better church. I know. I'm ashamed. See, I'm just dumb enough to tell you my dumbness. But I waved back. They waved at me, I waved back. Now I didn't say, hi, I waved, and that's just for you to believe and figure it out. And I got to thinking, like, as soon as I did that, because it was like, it, you know, really, I'm telling you, it was spontaneous. <laughs> I mean, we just, I mean, I did that and didn't realize what I'm doing. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? And I was like, God, I hope she don't go to church where I preach. <laughs> I hope she ain't one of my members. Well, if she is, I just lost one. <laughs> I hope her mama don't go where I go and know me on Facebook. And I was pulling in smokey pit going to meet a brother. And I was like, God Almighty, what a piece of work I am. I'm like, Dale, what's wrong with you, man? What you? Come on, man, you better than that. you better than that, man. I don't to be that guy. I couldn't even go and smoke and pee for a little bit. I pulled over there, crossed the other way. No big deal. And I know God's not, God's already forgiven me, but I just sat in my truck and I said, Papa, I'm sorry about that right there now. Man, that ain't the man I want to be, ever. So whatever has got me all wired up right on the edge today, come on now. Let me live out of the peace that you have gifted me with. I don't want to be that guy. And Father, I confess that I am the righteous of God in Christ. And I confess I do have your peace. to surpasses all understanding. And I confess I'm not that guy. Now, Father, help me go in this meeting with this man. Let me be of some use to this brother. And help me. Then I drove back across the road, poured in a smoking pig. And went in and met him had lunch. And you got to forget that kind of stuff and move on with your life. We're in flesh. And this flesh here ain't gotten sanctified yet, the flesh, but your spirit sure has. And the fact that I'd even touched my heart over something people that other people wouldn't even give a thought about proves to me that, you know what, I really am born again. And I really do love the Lord, and I'm loved by him, and I want to be, really be a testimony to him. But I'm just real enough to tell you that that's kind of life sometimes. And I don't want you to crumble and fall under. 30 years ago when that would happen to me, there would be that devil's voice I listened to and he told me I wasn't saved. And he made me doubt my salvation and then he pointed to my sin as proof positive that I really wasn't saved. Then I would have thoughts like, why don't I just give up? Or why don't I just go do drugs and get drunk or something and just hell with it? Because I can't live it no how." I had all those kind of messed up thoughts. But that's not the truth. The truth is that you've been redeemed. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. You've put your faith in him. You have a new spirit. It's just like Jesus's. You've been joined, and you're one spirit with him. I want you to live out of that. I want you to walk boldly in that. Okay? I pray, you know, and I say, Father, you know, I feel this so strong. I actually was telling uh, Pastor Keith. I went, went, we met this week. And, and I told Pastor Keith the, the morning I met with him, the previous night, I actually dreamed uh about what i'm preaching about just i was talking to a lady and uh in my dream she's the one that, and that's kind of how it started she told me she said you know i've done my best you know I just, I just feel like god wants us to do our best and then he takes care of the rest and in my dream i looked at her and i said darling god don't want your best i said how long have you been trying to give him your best she said well i got saved five years ago i said god don't want your best do you think your best is good enough to get you in No, that would make Jesus' coming, death, burial, and resurrection insignificant and not needed. And I remember just, I told her, I said, write down every sin that you can ever think of. And she put it in a shoebox in my dream. And in my dream, I know it's going to sound weird, I said, hand it to him. And she turned and looked, and it was Jesus standing there. And she handed it to him, and he turned and tossed it into the fire. And he put his arms out and said, come here. I dreamed that. It was so cool. He'll never remember her sins anymore. And there will never be a day that he'll bring up any past or current sin to her. And if he says anything to her, it will remind her to who he's made her to be in, 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 in himself, in Christ. That's all God's going to do. He's never going to beat you up. He's never going to do any of those things. Paul said it like this Romans 8. What's well, going to be able to separate you from the love of God? Death, peril, and He names, all kind of stuff. He said nothing. And nothing, listen, if you believe what I preach today, nothing can separate you from the love of God, listen, which is displayed in his forgiveness to you. Because God doesn't just say he loves you. He says, I forgive you. And I forgive you. It's like when my wife married me, July 12, 1980. It's been a minute or two ago now. But we didn't understand it then. We understand it far better now. But what, what we were doing in those vows, in that covenant, we were saying, we know you're not perfect but I accept you and I become one with you. And I promise that right here this day, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And only death will part us, right? That's what you you know, some people's vows say. I said to death, do us part. So in other words. So the only thing that make us ever, you know, get away from one another is death. Now, if you don't want that kind of deal, don't put it in your vows. It's because of religion. But we said to death, do us part. Okay. And, and then I didn't realize back then as a young guy, but what I realize now is, you know what she was really saying to me? I, in advance, forgive you for every future sin that you're about to do to me. Because I've dated you long enough to know that you're going to sin against me. <laughs> and I have no illusion that you're perfect. And I would say I kind of had the same premise about her, but to a much smaller degree, because to me, she was about to be perfect. But what, that's really what two people are saying. I forgive you in advance. That's how it is with God. He's the husband, we're the wife. God said, I'm going to marry you, and I've taken care of everything. I don't want your past is over. You have a wonderful future and a brilliant past because now your past is my past. And when I died, you died. And when I was buried, you were buried. And when I rose again, you rise. Let me ask you this. How many times do you have to be baptized before you're baptized? It's not hard, y'all. Once. Okay, so everybody comes up here, and, and, and you can't prove nothing. In the Bible, one baptism, that's sufficient. There's nothing wrong with it. If you want to be baptized 14 times and know every bullfrog name and every creek in Vila that's fine. But as far as the Bible, one time is sufficient. Do you think you sinned after you got baptized? Why don't you get baptized again then? Apparently, you're not resurrection life if you're still living like a dead man. Come on. But no. So how many times do you get physically born? It's not hard, y'all. How many times do you get spiritually born again? How many times you get baptized? How many times did you pay your credit card bill? How many times did Jesus pay your price for all sin? One time. It's done. If you can believe in one baptism, one spiritual is sufficient, why can't you believe in one forgiveness is sufficient? And you walk in that forgiveness and don't do crazy stuff, but if you do, you're righteous still, and you will fall, but you get back up. And the only reason people get back up is the people that know that they've been gifted righteousness and it's not based on their performance. And so when a righteous man falls seven times, he'll get back up again because he says, that's not who I am. And then he goes confessing. I confess that I am the righteous God in Christ. And the hardest thing for me to learn was when I sinned. In that moment, I felt like a piece of trash. And that wasn't God making me feel that way, by the way. But when I felt like a piece of trash... To stand in faith in that moment of feeling that and being attacked by the enemy. To say out of my mouth, I am still the righteous of God in Christ Jesus. I am who God says I am. Not, I am not in what I just did or how I behaved. I am the righteous of God in Christ. And I want to tell you that devil to leave you alone, buddy, when you do that right there. Because he ain't got no, no handhold on you then. Because you're not standing in nothing you've done, and he can't you know, carry on a dialogue about your behavior and get you focused on you. Instead of looking unto Jesus, not looking unto you. And when you come to communion, you ain't remembering your sins and looking at you. You're remembering him. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Amen? That's everything I know in one, one service. Stand with me. Community group leaders, if all you didn't go on vacation, y'all come up here. And, uh, and, and elders, please, would y'all come and our, our leaders come. And, and we're here for you. If you don't uh, come up, then that just means we go eat quicker. But we're, we love you. We do value you. And, uh, and uh, we're here to pray with you about any, anything. Uh, c- can I just say to you right now that you understand this right now. If you're not born again, the greatest thing you can do is put your faith in Christ Jesus. And I, I would love for you to do that. And if you'll just believe what I've preached, believe in him, you're saved. Okay, Father, I bless your people. Thank you for the word that brings salvation, the gospel of God, the power of God unto salvation. We're not ashamed of it. We thank you for it. We pray for these precious people in Jesus' name. Amen. Go and enjoy this beautiful day. If you want prayer for any reason, please come up here. We're here to pray with you. God bless you.